Paris Perspective. Mr David Miliband, CEO of the International Rescue Committee and former UK Foreign Secretary, thank you for meeting of with course, me today. Of course, happy to be with you. Well now, you are currently in Paris to highlight, well, the various crises uh, the world is facing these days, not least the millions of Ukrainians that have been displaced in Europe, but the subsequent skyrocketing of grain prices that have contributed to food insecurity in, of course, Africa, Afghanistan and all developing countries and even developed countries. So before we dive in here, um, I'd like to you know, before we touch base on the pressing issues, if you will, uh, that we're going to bring to the fore in our conversation, can you tell us more about the work of the International Rescue Committee and what exactly drew you to the organisation when you left UK politics? Well, thanks for having me on. The International Rescue Committee is headquartered in New York, but actually has its origins in Europe. We were founded by Albert Einstein, who, as you know, was a refugee in North America, in New York, Princeton University in uh, New Jersey in the 1930s, and he was consumed by a sense of guilt and fear about what was happening in Europe, the rise of the Nazis, the threats to Jews, to intellectuals, to dissidents, and he effectively set up the IRC in order to rescue people from Europe. Our first employee was a man called Varian Fry. He set up a safe house in Marseille. He issued 2,000 fake passports, and people like Marc Chagall lived because they were helped to escape from occupied France by the IRC or by its originating founders. And so that spirit of humanity, that spirit of entrepreneurialism, that spirit of risk-taking uh, remains part of the lifeblood of the organization. We're now a large humanitarian aid organization, which is different from many NGOs. We're not an anti-poverty organization. We're against poverty, but we're not an anti-poverty organization. We help people whose lives are shattered by conflict, persecution and disaster to survive, recover and gain control of their lives. So we're helping people who are in poverty, but for the reason of being caught up in conflict or targeted for, um, by oppressive regimes. And so it's a, it, it's a focused mission that takes us to 35 countries. And we often talk about the arc of crisis, mm. the war zone, the conflict zone in Somalia or in Syria or in Afghanistan. Um, the flight of people inside their own country as internally displaced, of whom there are about 55 million in the world today. Uh, we help refugees who are in Jordan, if you're a Syrian, who are in Bangladesh, if you're from Myanmar, if you're a Rohingya, uh, who are in Poland, if you're a Ukrainian. Yeah. And then we also help people complete the journey from what we say harm to home uh, by being the largest resettlement agency in America. All of that to say, why did that attract me? Very briefly, one... I like hard problems, and these are tough cases. Mm. Two, not many people knew about the IRC, and it had a responsibility in, in 2013 when I joined to step up as a, an organization that was focused on these problems. And thirdly, my parents were refugees, so there's a sense of continuously like exactly paying something back, but it, it's a closing of a circle, really, mm -hmm. to work in this area. Now, we have got to go to what looks upon and definitely what the media has been looking upon as the main crisis of the moment, and that is, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine that uh, happened on the 24th of uh, February. Uh, of course, there is the tragedies that are happening on the ground, but also uh, insecurity has been, food insecurity, should I say, has been put uh, under the f spotlight here, and also the fragility of global supply chains. And this is even after what we witnessed with COVID-19, where one small chink in the chain had massive repercussions across the world, and of course in developing countries. Uh, but what is the IRC proposing now to mitigate, well, the current and of course impending food crises that we're all facing? Well, I won't rehearse 
the problem set, but I do mm. want to say this, that the Ukraine crisis has accelerated mm. the crisis of food security. That, that was already created, there. Exactly. There was uh, 135 million people at acute levels of food insecurity, international phase classification three or four, which are the two below famine, three years ago. Mm. Now it's 345 million, in part driven on, driven up by COVID and then by the Ukraine crisis mm. and the effect on grain prices, food prices more generally that you, mm. you reference. So it's important to understand what the problem is to develop a solution. And evidently the problem is both short term to do with Ukraine hence the importance of the grain supplies that are coming out of Ukraine now slowly, but also the structural problem. So what's the IRC saying? We're saying we've got to do two things. One, we've got to treat the symptoms. Mm. The US delivered $1.1 billion of commitment in uh, July to mitigate the worst effects of the, uh, essentially, the people at the door of famine, 35 million people at the door of famine in Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia. So you've got to treat the symptoms. We've got to treat child malnutrition much better. 80% of acutely malnourished kids don't get any help at all at the moment around uh, the world. We've got to especially remember that women and girls are often doubly or triply um, victimized in these emergency uh, situations. So there's a treatment of the symptoms, but there's also then more structural changes. We can't, as an international aid agency, affect the global food system. Yeah. But we can argue for and invest in, for example, climate-resilient agriculture. Because Africa should be feeding more of itself, but that takes investment, and that takes investment that takes account of the dangers of the climate crisis, which is here and now. I often hear people say, oh, well, better to feed people now, you know, we'll deal with the climate crisis in 40 years' time. The climate crisis is here now yeah. for the people that we serve. Well, especially across the Sahel, we can see that with the desertification of, uh, you know, of, of large swathes of Africa at this exactly. stage. And that just feeds into the vicious cycle of you know, militia groups because there's nothing else to, uh, to feed the people with other than picking up arms. Um, but you, you touched on something very important there, and that was about the... Uh, well, I could say the, the triple whammy, if you will, for women. Um, now, look at Afghanistan, and this um, features very highly on the IRC watch list mm -hmm. as the country that faces the most challenges. It's number one on your watch list uh, since the fall of Kabul back in August of 2021. Now, uh, what initiatives are still intact to help mm -hmm. those in need under the, well, the resurgent Taliban? And mm -hmm. especially the first thing is it's women's rights. Mm -hmm. And the, all of these educated women over the last 20 years have they lost everything? You have initiatives, though, I think, that uh, are specific. Yeah, I don't want to shock you or your listeners, mm. and so I'll try and choose my words carefully, but it's easier in some ways to do humanitarian work in Afghanistan today than it was two or three years ago. Why? Well, there isn't a war going on, mm. so it's actually safer in one way. Yeah. Now, it's less safe if you are a vocal opponent of the regime, mm. And it's less safe or less free if you're a woman. Yes. But we have 7,000 staff in Afghanistan, local people, not mm. people helicoptered in, but local people. And 44, 45% of them are women, mm. including in quite senior positions in the organization. And we deliver malnutrition treatment. We deliver education, including for girls. Uh, we deliver livelihood support. But what we're facing is an economic meltdown. 
Sure, really. The, the war economy was, is over, but a new economy has not been built, and they've been given a crash course, really, in administration, uh, in 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 reestablishing mm. or establishing a new, much poorer equilibrium. And that's how you end up with this extraordinary statistic. I can hardly believe it myself. The United Nations says that 97% of Afghans are living below the poverty line, which is an extraordinary statistic if you stop and think about it. Um, for realism, it's important to say that's a measurement of the formal economy, and there was obviously a large informal economy. But nonetheless, you've got mass poverty in Afghanistan, not because of an ongoing conflict, but yeah. because the banking system isn't working, because the assets that, un that you need to underpin to capitalize a banking system have been frozen. Mm. Secondly, the salaries of public servants, about 50% of the, 40% of the population were public servants, teachers significantly, not being paid. Yeah despite the World Bank having a fund uh, for that. And a finance ministry and a, and a central bank that lacks the technical expertise to run itself. So I'm in the peculiar position of saying to you, look, we can do our work, and we've got funding to do some work. Of course, we always want more. But nonetheless, we're high, we're, we employ 7,000 people there. Mm. But we're running up a downward escalator because the economy is no longer in free fall. But it's, operate, it's, it's bumping along the bottom. Yeah. And my point is always, don't punish the Afghan people twice over. They didn't choose their government, but they're being punished for their government in a way that doesn't actually help them. And on a more practical level, is there a certain pragmatism that you might say has crept in with the Taliban when actually having to deal with these 7,000 plus people who you have on the ground? Well, I wouldn't, choose that, I wouldn't choose that word. We, we, That's too we, too far. we worked the International Rescue Committee has worked in Afghanistan before the Taliban came in in the 1990s, mm -hmm. during the Taliban rule of the 1990s, in the 20 years after the Taliban, and we're still there. Mm. Some of the people who are in office now know us from our work then. And we work wherever there we can find humanitarian, unmet humanitarian need. Uh, they, um, we're allowed to do our work in 11 provinces. Uh, we respect the local people, and they respect us and so I wouldn't want to make a comment about the pragmatism or otherwise of the uh, of the new government of the new ruling authorities, but I, I do want to say to people that this economic penalty that's being imposed, mm. the, the U.S. has frozen seven billion dollars worth of assets that should be underpinning the banking system. President Biden has said he wants to release half of them. We're saying the sooner you can do that, the better. Mm. So. It's an unusual position because I'm, I'm saying to you, humanitarian aid can't make up for a cratered economy. Yes. The economy has to find a new equilibrium, which is not a war economy with international aid and all the challenges that, or international budget support and all the challenges that go with that. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, the people aren't being given a choice, a chance to make good for themselves. Uh, I won't go into the IS presence uh, in Afghanistan, which are a bit of a thorn in the side, but I mean, that I think might be another day's conversation because I think there are more pressing issues in neighboring country that we just saw there recently, and that was Pakistan. Um, with the IRC, you have an emergency response team on standby uh, to assess the immediate needs, uh, I'm quoting here, you know, uh, in, you know, in the wake of unforeseen emergencies, and what we saw in Pakistan there only a few days ago um, were... were 
cataclysmic, um, the intensity was almost biblical and uh, the images were absolutely staggering. What was your emergency response when yeah. you saw those images? So, we, look, a third of the country at one point last week yeah. was underwater, yeah. which is an extraordinary uh, statistic. So our team is no longer assessing, they're working. Um, what we know in the, in the short term, in the first 72 hours of an emergency like this, cash support, very important, because there are still markets functioning. Yeah. Secondly, water. You, can get, you need food after three days, but you need water in the first day. Yeah. So clean water, very, very important. Avoid cholera, of course. Yeah, the exactly, and the spread of yeah. disease that uh, goes with it. So safe water uh, supplies. And also, you've got kids who've lost, lost parents, so there's a big child protection, child safety, children's support. Um, we have been working in, Af- in Pakistan since 1980, so we've got some presence on the ground. Uh, and we have this uh, emergency reserve capacity that we've built up in countries that are at risk of disasters like this that we're helping to mobilize. And there's quite a big, and there's obviously a large Pakistani diaspora in countries like the UK. Sure. Um, there's now in the UK actually a big appeal. The Disaster Emergency Committee is making an appeal. But I was pleased uh, when I met President Macron this morning. Uh, he was talking about uh, and also his um, emergency uh, cell, the uh, strategic emergency and strategic, yeah. strategic um, uh, support and emergency contact cell, uh, that cellule, uh, that they are also supporting the, the Pakistani effort because obviously it's a massive challenge for the country. Uh, and that brings me on to a question I would like to put to you now. I'm ahead of your visit here to Paris and your meeting this morning with uh, President Emmanuel Macron. The IRC has called for strategic autonomy in humanitarian action. Can you just explain specifically what that means? Well, what we, what we, obviously strategic autonomy is not our phrase. It's uh, President Macron's uh, phrase. And the president of the commission has talked about a geopolitical commission. Mm. What we've said is that there's a humanitarian angle to that. One, Europe get its own house in order for the way that it does things. Now, the good news is that in respect of the Ukraine refugees, Europe set a new standard. Rights to work, rights to education, rights to residence. Um, But if if refugees around the world had the same rights as Ukrainian refugees, we'd be in a different uh, situation. So one, Europe get its own uh, house in order. Secondly, Europe use its tools for intervention in crisis situations in the most effective way, supporting the economic livelihoods as well as social intervention, remembering that it's women who are doubly victimized. So there's a whole set of humanitarian aid reform uh, ideas. Thirdly, what we call humanitarian diplomacy. Yeah. We know that in war zones around the world, impunity is rife, impunity is on the rise, and Europe has got some of the tools to try and call to account those who are abusing the rights of civilians, who are meant to have rights to humanitarian aid, which is too often denied, rights to safety in the middle of uh, conflict, which are often abused. Well, indeed, the, 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 the expression double standards was kind of ringing in a lot of people's ears when the Ukraine crisis really came to the fore back in February, because we have already lived from 2015 with the massive migration coming from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, with the various um, deals that were done maybe with Turkey or Libya to, to keep the migrants of the places, which has really, let's just say, backfired. I mean, um, in tandem for calls, uh, with calls for a concerted response, as I say, to insecurity on a European level, be it migration, be it food, etc., are such calls actually viable? When you look, you say the toolbox might be there, but all the tools aren't being used. And you know, these are the strictures of the European Union and how it was founded, the veto and also unanimity. 
can they be circumvented? Well, Europe did circumvent them in that remarkable weekend yeah. after February the 24th. Yeah, it can and, be done uh, with the will of Jean Monnet said Europe uh, takes steps forward out of crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the revealed ability of Europe is to take significant steps. Mm -hmm. But we've got a lot of fires burning around the world. Europe can't put out them all. But in some areas, it can be a leader. Yeah. And our point, my point is that it's in its interest to do so, as well as a, a moral compunction to do so. And we, we know that in all sorts of areas, the longer you delay tackling humanitarian crisis, the greater the political instability that results from it. And there's no easy recipe. Humanitarian aid on its own won't make communities love each other, put out wars, uh, but, but it's an essential part of the story. Yeah. And certainly, if you don't get your humanitarian aid right, things get worse. Now, not to conclude fully, but coming towards the conclusion of our conversation Is that today, way of saying you want short answers? Is no, right. no, no, no. You can take as long as you want, but I'm just kind of trying to wrap it up there because it's a very um, important, uh, I think, cap that has to be put on this, and you have um, brought it up there, and that is the issue of impunity. Um, Food supplies being used as a weapon of war. I mean, we, uh, as you said, you brought up from the beginning that you know it's a triple whammy for women in these conflict situations that has to be looked at, and in any crisis situation, as you said, even with Pakistan and the floods, with children, women, etc. So, holding human rights violators accountable is paramount. Yes, however, we live in very strange times. I mean, the rhetoric and propaganda from alleged you know per perpetrators uh, is constantly feeding cynicism and doubt in people's minds. I mean, working towards the future, how can we rise above the social media-driven wave of disinformation? Well, I think get people to tell their own story. I mean, the people who are the most powerful advocates about the abuse of international law in Ukraine are Ukrainians who've been under bombardment. The most powerful advocates for uh, tackling the, the um, denial of aid flows in Ethiopia are Ethiopians who are being denied those aid flows. You know, we had two colleagues of mine lost to a Russian missile in Syria uh, who were driving an ambulance in northwestern Syria. They can't give testimony, uh, but we can speak for them. And yes, you're right that a social media age, what I call an anti-social media age, is one where fake news, um, post-truth, uh, yeah. can... Uh, alternative facts can be on the run before the truth gets its boots on. So there's, no, there's nothing easy about it. But I think the other thing to say is don't live in the Twitter universe. Yeah, step outside. Get well, remember that 90% of the population are not on Twitter all the time. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important that um, we don't get swept up in a way that loses a sense of humanity or perspective. And this is kind of in a more existential way, but in a, in, in, on the back of the anti-social media and, um, you know, uh, fake news. Do you think, is there hope for us here? Has the search for truth been irreversibly eroded by these modern times? Well, like, you should never say irreversible. I mean, that's, that's the, what I want to hear. You never want to say mm -hmm. irreversible. A lot of people are persuaded of things that aren't true or are persuaded that nothing's true. Mm -hmm. Remember, there's a famous book about the situation in Russia called... Um, uh, nothing is true and everything is possible by Peter Pomerantso. Mm. And uh, be careful that post-truth does your head in. Remember, post-truth is not the replacement of a fact with a lie. It's the uh, denial of the idea that there's any truth so that everything is yeah. doubted. And that is in the populist, so-called populist 
playbook. So I don't think anything's irreversible, but we have to recognize we're living in an age when the number of people, the percentage of the global population living in fully free democracies has halved in the last 15 years, yeah. from 40% of the world living in what Freedom House calls fully free democracies to 20%. If you look at the Economist Intelligence Unit, it's less than 15% mm -hmm. live in fully democratic countries. So this is an age when the autocrats are on the march. I don't know about um, uh, truth being uh, reversed, but the autocrats are undoubtedly on the march. Democratic, liberal democratic societies have to defend themselves, yeah. um, and they have to hold on to their values in the face of an assault that is internal as well as external. But those values, do you think, just very finely, are they on the back foot at the moment? Yes, yeah. they are on the back foot, and that's um, why it's important that they don't get dragged further back. Okay, Mr. David Miliband, CEO of the International Rescue Committee and former UK Foreign Secretary, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you very much.